Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. And we are broadcasting from Athens, Greece, from a beautiful terrace, looking at the Parthenon in the sunlight. What a magical thing that you can actually do this. Looking upon this great site where so many great eternal conversations took place. It is an inspiring thing to see, and we have an inspiring show for you lined up. But first, we have a inspiring panel that is coming up at the next Global Mining Symposium, and it is going to be a high-end rare earth elements panel featuring some of the top-end people in the space We understand here at the Northern Miner that a lot of the strategic metals are not covered adequately in the media, and we are not deaf to your pleas. So we are doing what we can to serve you. We only ask that you do your part and go to events.northernminer.com, and all you have to do is put in your email and hit send, and you will be invited to attend this one-of-a-kind event. And so let me just get some details on who is going to be here. You have Clint Cox, who is widely regarded as a leading expert, and you have the CEO of Energy Fuels, Mark Chalmers, and you have the CEO of Commerce, a junior with a big asset, Chris Grove. So we are out there doing what we can to get you that information that you want, and this is the kind of stuff that will help you get ahead. Very exciting show coming up today. We have Don Duvall. CEO of NORCAT, and he was just at the Canadian Mining Journal's Supplier Symposium, and he was on a panel called Reimagine Mining, and it was very interesting. I think it was just so many of the topical things that you would be concerned about if you are running a mining company, such as technology, and Don is saying that if you don't adopt an outsource innovation model, in other words, if you're not finding a strong model to bring in technology from outside your company, you are not going to thrive like those that are doing that. And also they talk about the workforce and how the paradigm has changed. Now everybody wants to look at the Parthenon as they work, and I can only recommend it, folks. I can only recommend it. But there has been a paradigm shift in the workforce. So Lots of very interesting, very topical things to discuss here. It was funny. I was on the subway here just yesterday for the first time in Athens, and a guy came up to me, and usually I'm not a fan of strangers coming up to me, uh, but luckily I kept an open mind as this guy came up to me and said, are, are you American? And I said, no, I'm Canadian, but I live in Germany. And he said, I just wanted to tell you that you have a very nice accent. And I said, well, you know, it's funny. I'm on a podcast. Maybe that's why I'm on that podcast. So it was a very nice thing, that Mediterranean warmth. uh, You hear about it, and it is a real thing. I can't say that happens in Germany very often, but I love that place too. Anyway, markets are, again, uh, they seem like they all want to break out, don't they? The industrial commodities are definitely breaking out. I mean, you are hearing a pretty steady, consistent narrative now from the pundits that are saying this is persistent. And my eyebrows were raised as I looked at the prices of copper, of zinc, 
of just about everything, 10, they have broken out of their trading range. I'm not looking at charts. I'm just talking about the numbers that I read to you every week, and I see a breakout here. So very interesting things. Gold, you know, it can't be easy to be a gold investor. I mean, you might as well just buy copper. I think I saw it at $4.78. I mean, if you want an inflation hedge, you know, I'm not sure, you know, and is it just manipulated or have people lost interest? Is it Bitcoin? Who knows? But all to say, it's not about ideology. It's not about being right. It's about making money, right? And you can have all the great theories in the world. But now let's see, maybe gold catches back up. And uh, yeah, the 10-year bond was at, I believe, 1.588%. So just a hair below last week. So all pretty interesting. I would say we have seen a shift. And it is towards an inflation narrative. In a sense, we are seeing some of the deflationary people. It's not that they're capitulating, but it's that the inflationary camp is starting to get more confident. And they're starting to say that the onus is on the deflationary people now because we are seeing persistent higher prices. And this is the word they use. Also coming up, we have president and director of Baroyeka Gold, Raul Sanabria on our CEO spotlight. So there is a ton to get to today, a feast of interesting content. So get yourself a coffee because you are not going to want to miss this very special episode. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts Wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to Raul Sanabria, president and director of Baroyeka Gold and Silver. So joining me today, I'm happy to welcome Raul Sanabria, who is president and director of Baroyeka Gold and Silver. And they are fully based in Colombia. Raul, welcome to the program. Hello, Adrian. Nice for having me here. Thank you very much. It's great to have you. So you're based in Colombia and you have the Atocha Silver Project there. Tell us, what is that project about? Well, our, our company is based in Vancouver, but we have all our infrastructure in Colombia. We are all our team, so we're proud to have 100% of our talent in Colombia. I am not Colombian, by the way. Um, I'm Spanish and I live in Vancouver, but I, I go to Colombia quite often. So the Atocha is, is one of those rare opportunities that you have to move up first in a dormant, uh, high-grade silver district that's been forgotten. So we got the opportunity to pick the best ground a few years ago. We got 2,600 hectares of, uh, that's a district-sized property right in the core of the colonial Santa Ana Frias uh, mining district, which is a primary silver district with some credit to gold uh, back in the 1700s and the 1800s. And we are the first ones that are going to do any modern exploration on it. Amazing. So how did that happen? How did you find virgin territory like that? The story goes back to 10 years ago when I was first uh, mover in Colombia looking for projects. I rediscovered the Santa Ana Colonial District. We got two projects at the time with another company and Barriega managed to get uh, what I think is like the best ground around. So we kept that for a number of years until we finally got the opportunity to find the right markets, uh, fund the project, get the right vehicle on that. And we took the company public before it was in a private vehicle. Grades are spectacular. We're looking at 
several percent silver, which means not even grams per ton or hundreds of grams per ton. We're looking at kilos per ton silver, and then gold is also reported in multi-ounce values. So this is a world-class district, and uh, we are lucky to be there. It sounds very exciting. I mean, kilograms per ton is not something you hear about every day. So what is the roadmap then? Like, how close are you to actually mining this stuff? What is the way forward? We're far from mining yet. We are we are exploring. So what we did is over the last uh, few months or actually years, we've been putting a strong and very robust geological model. So we want to see what's actually controlling the, the silver system. This is not just a simple vein system. It's several things going on. It's several other prints of uh, kind of mineralization over another, over another. And tectonically, uh, so you get all these uh, structures and sear zones that in, that in faults and fractures. We are now having a really strong geological model. And as we speak, we're building the drill platforms. And we hope next Monday, October 18th, we're going to start drilling. So mobilization is happening this weekend. So we're so excited to be the first one actually seeing what's underground the surface of this property. So tell me about Colombia. I mean, a lot of investors these days are concerned about jurisdiction. How comfortable are you there? Are you working well with the locals and the government? How is that all going? Yeah, we've been there for 10 years. I've been there for 10 years. So we know the good and the bad. We've seen like very good improvements in the in the mining agency, in the mining callus there. So the system, the bureaucracy is getting more and more simplified. It's still a long ways to go. It's still some uncertainty. But Onatocha is working well. So we know in that area, jurisdiction uh, safety-wise is an 11 out of 10. So there's no social problems. There's no political problems. You don't have any of the armed groups on the on the property. People is really friendly. We're looking at farmland, basically coffee crops, cocoa crops, cornfields. Very easy to work, and is uh, we're not hiding in the Cordillera. We're in the in the footsteps of the Cordillera, 600, 700 meters above sea level. So we are not dealing with any protected forest or the moorlands, the the Paramo, but actually stopped other uh, companies. So we think the project is in in the best place of Colombia that you can be, actually. Well, it doesn't sound much better than that. Now, you have another property that's in Colombia, if I'm not mistaken, the Santa Barbara project. Uh, what's going on over there? Well, Santa Barbara is a, is a different kettle of fish here. Even that's, a, that's a gold project, but it's also in, um, in what is supposed to be the richest gold belt in Colombia. It's the Serranía de San Lucas in southern Bolivar. Southern Bolivar is very famous for high-grade gold mines, artisanal mines. And we got into a property where we think is an exceptional density of veins. So it's 110 hectares. It's, it's not a district scale property like the other one, but we got like the cherry of the pie. We think all the veins are falling inside within the property boundaries. And we're taking a different approach. We are going more like you drill for uh, a structure and you drift for grade. So we're drifting first. So we identified all those veins that surface. We did our mapping with our rock sampling. And we found like most of our samples about 10 grams per ton, which is actually really exciting and anomalous. So last year, the company decided to go on a 150 meter tunnel following one of the veins, we channel sampled that. And we were collecting 10 ton batches and we were processing that in our own pilot processing plant. The company has a custom built state-of-the-art 30 ton per day processing plant, milling capacities over dimension for hundred tons per day. But we're using that as a, giant lab let's put it that way so every 10 tons that we process and then we collect the head grades and we just released our first 500 ton bulk sample usually bulk samples are 20 30 tons 10 tons 
who goes with 500? So we did. So that's a, that's a huge sample. And our average is like 24 grams per ton, which is excellent. By means of a crosscut tunnel that we started a couple of months ago, we access a parallel vein from underground. And we're going to release uh, next Monday, actually, we're going to release the first results. And I can anticipate you, they are very good. And we keep doing that kind of development. Once we know the length of the shoots and where the high grades are, and actually on the first vein, it goes over 150 meters and it's still open. So there's not actually different high grade zones within the vein. The whole vein is very consistent in grade. We will decide to drill underground and see how deep those goes. But at least we have very good density. We've got a dozen identified on the property in less than 300 meters of width of the corridor, plus some smaller ones. And that is to me personally, a close example to what you would see in Buriticao on the earliest stage when they started with like three main veins and now they ended up having that big number of parallel closed space ones. And that makes the biggest gold deposit in Colombia's history as well. Very interesting. So that brings me to my next question. Like, are there other companies around? Are you guys kind of off on your own? What's the neighborhood like as far as mining companies? In Santa Barbara, we are the only ones around. So there's no other public companies. We know there's uh, private miners, there's mining concessions around. But right there in Santa Barbara, we are the only ones. And in Atocha, yeah, in Atocha, we have neighbors. To the south, there's uh, El Gran Porvenir Mine. is uh, is a really known mine from private person in Medellin. That's the owner. That's a good example of uh, an actual deposit that is put into production, has been going for over 15 years now and still not depleted. And to the north and around, we have another Canadian company, Outcrop Gold, that is positioned on the Santa Ana and the Colonial Camp, which is about five kilometers north of where we are. They've been focusing their drilling there. But so far as we know, they haven't done any regional exploration on their applications. They have title applications, not mining concessions. So the only one they have is uh, 700 hectares to the northwest. So final question, just in terms of funding, do you guys feel like you have all the money you need in order to bring this forward? Uh, how do you feel just from a financial perspective? Oh, we are, we are in a very good position. We raised uh, a, over slightly over $3 million in the last 12 months, and that kept with the initial payments to the vendors to secure the, the option agreement. Some of that was invested in Santa Barbara. Santa Barbara, the whole idea with the bulk sampling is to create a non-dilutive cash flow for our shareholders. And that non-diluted cash flow will offset, actually defray most, if not all of the overhead costs in Colombia. And uh, on, on Atocha, uh, right now our cash position is 1.4 million for our phase one drill program. So it's more than enough, we're fully funded actually. And then we have leftovers for promotion and, and, and the next months uh, of uh, Q1, Q2, 2022. And finally, uh, what's next for you? What can we expect? Is it uh, drilling at uh, Atocha and we expect the results? Is that what we have to look forward to next? Our path is we're going to start drilling next week. So we usually expect seeing results from the first week of November onwards. We're attending the Columbian Gold Symposium in mid-November. So by then we want to have like a few holes and, uh, and, and be big in uh, promoting our results. But yes, once we start drilling, it's going to be a continuous flow of news releases. We are targeting Laie. Laie is, uh, is our biggest discovery so far on, on the property, even though we only explored about 20% of the, of the property, but we keep finding veins, we keep expanding that along strike, and that is preventing us to move around the property because we get stuck in one area because we keep finding and finding and finding. But this is, uh, this is a system with several closely spaced parallel veins. We have identified a continuous strike length of two kilometers, and then by the time you finish drilling, that is going to take months. So we're going to be busy there for a number of months while we allocate another uh, exploration crew, prospecting crew, 
to develop other targets on the property. We've got like six more already identified. So we can bring a second or a third role at any time, but we want to start slow. We want to start easy and see how the market reacts. And we want to actually develop and not overdevelop or other promote the property. Well, thank you, Raul Sanabria, president and director of Barrow Yaka Gold and Silver based in Colombia. Thank you for joining us on the CEO Spotlight. Yeah, thanks, Adrian. Thanks for having me. Nice meeting you. Nice meeting you too. And turning to the website, we have a few M&A stories that are going on here. So we're going to take a look at a few and then take a look at the bigger picture. Starting out, we see South32 has bought a stake in KGHM Chilean mine for $1.55 billion. And this is by Cecilia Jamazmi. It says Australia's South32 has acquired almost half of the vast Sierra Gorda copper mine in northern Chile majority owned by Polish miner KGHM for $1.55 billion in cash. Japan's Sumitomo Metal Mining and Sumitomo Corp, which together hold a 45% stake, had said last year that they were considering exiting the operation after years of losses. The deal marked the Perth-based miners' entry into the world's largest copper-producing country ahead of an expected demand boom for the metal. Sierra Gorda is located in the prolific mining region of Antofagasta in Chile and has production capacity of about 150,000 tons of copper concentrate and 7,000 tons of molybdenum. And we have a quote from BMO analyst Alexander Pierce and David Gagliano, who wrote in a research note, quote, It's a long-life asset with sulfide reserves of 1.5 billion tons at 0.4% copper and potential for future expansions. So that is a pretty big deal on the flip side, we have Glencore is selling Bolivian assets to Santa Cruz Silver Mining, and this is by Northern Miner staff. Santa Cruz Silver Mining, which owns the producing zinc-lead copper Zamapan mine in Mexico's Hidalgo State, is acquiring a portfolio of silver assets in Bolivia from Glencore. The assets include Glencore's 45% stake in the producing Bolivar and Porco mining operations, and its joint venture with Bolivian state-owned miner Comabol. 100% stake in the Sinchi Waira business, which includes the producing Cabala Blanco mining complex and the Sorokaya project, as well as the San Lucas ore sourcing and trading business. Finally, under the deal, Santa Cruz will pay an initial $20 million in cash when the transaction closes and another $90 million over a four-year period. And Glencore will be granted a 1.5% net smelter return royalty on the assets. So that is Santa Cruz. There's been a battle by Wailu Metals and BHP for Norant Resources. You know, uh, again, I've been talking about how cheap Norant Resources is going for. So Cecilia Jamazmi is on this beat. A months-long battle over nickel-copper miner Norant Resources may have come to an end, as a Canadian company said today that it had picked a sweetened bid from Australian mining billionaire Andrew Forrest's Wailu Metals over the latest offer from BHP. Wailu's 70 cent per share proposal represents a superior value for shareholders, Norant said, adding BHP has five business days to match the offer. The Australian miner said in a separate statement that its offer represented a higher 92% premium to Norant's unaffected closing price on May 21st, adding it, quote, did not intend to support any alternate offers for the takeover target. BHP, the world's largest miner, said in August that it would consider matching Wailu's raised bid as part of its ongoing strategy of expanding its footprint among future-facing commodities, including nickel, lithium, and copper. The tug-of-war between the two Australian companies is the latest evidence of the rush global miners are into in order to secure supply 
of battery metals ahead of an expected surge in demand from electric vehicles. Wailu Metals, which already is Noron's top shareholder with a 37% stake as of September, had in May offered 31.5 cents per share. Now it's 70. For the stock it did not already hold in the company, Noron had adopted a poison pill strategy to stop the takeover. And BHP quickly saw an opportunity and offered 55 cents per share for Noron, representing a premium of 129% to the firm's closing price on May 21st. And Noron had recommended shareholders to accept BHP's friendly bid, but Wailu came back last month with a sweetened offer of 70 cents per share. So on and on it goes. All to say, as we've discussed on recent episodes, this is not going for a huge amount of money. And so... No wonder they are busy outbidding and doubling, more than doubling their bid. Uh, Wailu, again, originally offered 31.5 cents per share, and now it's 70 cents per share. So that is happening. Meanwhile, BHP's London investors support their climate change plan. Now, this climate change plan has been criticized for not going far enough. This is also by Cecilia Jamazmi, and it says here, BHP secured key backing for its climate transition strategy, despite concerns that the long-term plan to tackle customers' greenhouse gas emissions did not go far enough. At its annual general meeting in London, the world's largest miners' climate change roadmap won an 83% support, a much stronger outcome than the knife-edge results some analysts had predicted. Quote, it is important that all of our shareholders have an opportunity to engage with us on our climate strategy and actions, and this advisory vote is intended to provide a forum for discussion and feedback on the plan, end quote, Chairman Ken McKenzie said at the meeting. So they are saying, because our shareholders voted so strongly in favor, we are good to go. BHP committed in 2019 $400 million over five years to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from its operations and mined commodities. It also vowed to reduce its Scope 3 emissions, those generated by customers using the company's commodities, which are 40 times greater than those generated by its mines and oil fields. And we have talked extensively about Scope 3 emissions on this podcast. Very controversial in my view. The master plan to cut such emissions by 30% by 2030 from last year's level did not set hard targets for its steelmaking, which drew criticism from some investors. One of them, prominent advisory firm Glass Lewis and Company, launched a campaign urging shareholders to vote down the plan. While steel is an important component in many of the products driving the decarbonization process, its production accounts for as much as 10% of global greenhouse gas emissions and about 75% of BHP's Scope 3 emissions. So interesting as these miners try and accommodate the new demands put on them by investors. It's interesting to watch this go. So Trish Saywell, editor-in-chief, wrote a piece, Appetite for Green Energy Metals Drives Deals. So this kind of sums up the last few stories we have here. Demand for green energy metals like copper, nickel, lithium, and cobalt has risen sharply, driven by the global move to lower carbon emissions and electric vehicle makers chasing battery ingredients. On October 13th, Tesla inked a multi-year nickel supply deal with New Caledonia's Prony Resources, which will give the EV maker roughly 42,000 tons of the metal, making it the miner's largest customer. And late last month, China's EV battery giant Contemporary Amperex Technology said it had signed a deal to acquire Canada's Millennial Lithium for $305 million US. Millennial has two lithium brine projects in Argentina. The latest deal on October 14th is South32's acquisition of a 45% stake in Sierra Gorda, 
a low-grade open-pit copper mine in Chile's Antofagasta region for an upfront cash payment of $1.6 billion. And we have a quote from So32CO Graham Kerr. Copper is a critical metal in the decarbonization of the world's energy networks and has strong long-term market fundamentals, end quote. So despite the Japanese miners taking losses on the project, So32 thinks they can do something with it. And just a final couple of headlines as we're going long. El Rosa says global stock of rough diamonds is minimal. So they are running out of diamonds, at least the rough ones, by Cecilia Jamazmi. El Rosa, the world's top diamond miner by output, warned that global stock of roughs are nearing multi-year lows as demand continues to increase without a meaningful supply response from miners. And according to El Rosa, quote, rough diamond stocks at miners are at minimal levels as supply structurally drop, but jeweler demand is strong in all the key markets. So just another part of the economy where demand is rising and supplies are tightening. So those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices and we're going to see more of this. to metal prices. The 10-year bond is at 1.592%. That is just 0.008% lower than last week. And turning to our metals, we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. And on October 19th, gold is trading at $1,780.81 per ounce. That is $21 higher than last week's quote. Silver is trading a dollar 12 higher at $23.73 per ounce. Platinum is trading at $1,053.66 per ounce. That is $38 higher than last week's quote. And palladium is trading $19 lower at $2,080.95 per ounce. Turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.79 per pound. That is 60 cents higher than last week. Aluminum is trading at $1.43 per pound. That is 11 cents higher than last week. Lead is 7 cents higher at $1.09 per pound. Nickel cracks $9 at $9.01 per pound. That is 45 cents higher than last week. Tin is at an all-time high while we've been recording these prices at $17.67 per pound. That is 92 cents higher than last week. Cobalt is also higher at $25.43 per pound. That is $1.41 higher. And zinc is at $1.72. That is $0.31 higher than last week. What do we see? An all-out breakout in the industrial metals. Precious metals are a touch higher. Frankly, nothing to write home about. Industrial metals seem to be charging higher to the next leg of this bull market in industrial metals. Very interesting. As they say, these prices remain persistent. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Don Duval, Chief Executive Officer of NORCAT. And Alicia gives Don an extensive bio, but it says here, Don has spent more than two decades leading, growing, and transforming organization and businesses. A career innovator, he consistently identifies opportunities and addresses challenges to achieve meaningful, intangible results. He's among Canada's foremost thinkers on innovation, work and learning, and entrepreneurship. 
and he has worked with many multinational companies, tech startups, academic and research institutions, governments, and clients the world over. It's a fascinating discussion on some of the biggest topics facing the world right now, including the mining industry, particularly technology and the workforce. I hope you enjoy it, and we will see you on the other side. to introduce Don Duval, CEO of Norcat. Don has spent more than two decades leading, growing, and transforming organizations and businesses, working with multinational companies, tech startups, academic and research institutions, governments, and clients around the world. As CEO of Norcat, he has transformed the organization into a global, multifaceted enterprise focused on providing programs, services, and resources to prepare workers and tech entrepreneurs with the skills and confidence to succeed. Don is also the founder and co-managing partner of the Sudbury Catalyst Fund. He is an active angel investor and sits on a variety of boards. He previously served as VP of Strategy and Operations for the Mars Discovery District, as an investment director with the Mars Investment Accelerator Fund, and as senior manager within Deloitte Consulting. Don also holds an undergraduate degree in chemistry from Queen's University and a Master of Applied Science and Engineering from the University of Toronto. Don, that is quite the bio. It is so nice to have you with us today. Nice to see you, Alicia. So NORCAT is at the forefront of two of the most important topics in mining, new mining technology and training of the industry's workforce. So let's start off talking a little bit about the technology side. Sure. So at Norcat, you have an underground test mine, and you were nice enough to give me a tour when I was in Sudbury a couple of years ago. One of your primary goals with the test mine is to connect mining companies with technology providers. I just wanted to know what have you seen at Norcat during the course of the pandemic in terms of the pace of innovation? I mean, we've been hearing all day about collaboration between mining companies and technology providers to solve the big problems of, of the mining industry. So how did the pandemic affect that dynamic based on what you saw? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Alicia, when, when, when COVID-19 uh, pandemic was declared, we anticipated a significant disruption to that line of our business, whereby we support these tech companies to use the mine as a place to develop, test, and or demonstrate emerging technologies. And understandably so, the first six, eight months, yeah, it was a bit of a slow period as the world kind of paused to figure out what was going to happen. But very quickly out of that, we, we noticed some interesting trends, but the root of this story is that the underground center, our brand for the uh, test mine, as it's often referred to, in terms of the amount of activity and deal flow from technology companies using the mine for those aforementioned purposes that I cited, it is the busiest it's ever been. And it's been like that probably, you know, if you do year over year comparisons, even six months ago, when we were still in the depths of the third wave trying to figure out and navigate, you know, what was going to happen. We, uh, you know, candidly did not foresee uh, this uh, as evolving the way it did. But it, it seemingly was off the charts. And, and I've been often asked, you know, why do you think that is? And I come up with three reasons that may or may not be, uh, you know, rooted in any type of statistically valid data, but all anecdotal after speaking to these companies. And, you know, the first one is there's a kind of a, 
a renaissance of, I'll call it urgency among the mining companies. You know, those who were considering investing in, you know, communications for underground mines to enable teleremote autonomous work, all of a sudden had a heightened sense of urgency that, you know what, we need to do this. And we saw some interesting technology trends evolving in very short order that had always been on the docket for many mining companies, be it in Canada or around the world, but now got inched forward because of the pandemic. You know, another reason too is obviously with the declaration of the pandemic, there were a huge amount of government supports that were beyond just, you know, maintaining status quo. There were, you know, stimulus funds that were apportioned and many of the beneficiaries of those stimulus funds were emerging technology companies that were building, you know, economically sustainable businesses that included products or services to support the mining industry. So I, I would call it a, a, a massive infusion of, you know, capital to support tech companies building products as part of a stimulus package all of a sudden created many of these companies that were in product development looking to commercialize that said, hey, what an interesting and unique opportunity for us to do the demonstration commercialization component of this technology now that we've unlocked a fairly meaningful amount of capital. So, you know, kind of the demand side, but also on the supply side with access to non-dilutive capital, we saw a, a flurry of companies coming to us paying to use the underground mine and the source of those funds was not earned. It was, you know, non-dilutive grant capital to help them get over those hurdles. So that, that was quite unique. And then I think the, the last one, and again, this is rooted in nothing beyond anecdotal conversations, but many of these small, when the, the, there was a, a migration to work from home, we found less distraction and more opportunity to focus on creativity, creativity and design. So some of the smaller companies, when we had discussions with them, when they were at the mine site, a lot of the discussions were, I've had time to reflect and really focus on building because there's no external distraction given the current state of affairs. So when you add those three things together, uh, you know, the pandemic has, I think, really kind of reignited and, and kickstarted the, you know, more on the smaller side, I would argue, but the whole tech building products and services to support the mining industry us as a data point, you know, litmus test metric has never been busier. That's really interesting. I was going to ask you, I, I mean, we've all noticed an influx of, of new technology companies emerging to, to, to serve the mining sector. And I was going to ask you where all this new activity is coming from, but I think you've just answered the question or is there another answer to that? Well, you know, the other interesting thing, and I'm not sure that, you know, beyond maybe expediting uh, the pandemic has directly, you know, has direct attribution to support this. But, you know, as I think you and I have even talked about this before, you know, five, seven years ago, I think we would be collectively hard pressed to name any, you know, angel consortium, venture capital or PE firms that really focused on supporting tech ventures selling into the mining industry, at least exclusively. Now, fast forward five years later, um, you know, I could probably name you a half a dozen of material ones in aggregate, probably with close to a billion dollars of investment capital, ready and eager to deploy for solutions that are serving the global mining industry. So not only on the non-dilutive grant side, did we see a lot of supports and stimulus capital going in, but now kind of the capital markets, you know, more so on the private side have really woke up, if you will, to really provide these tech companies, especially the small startup and medium-sized enterprises to really get going. So, and I can speak more as to why I think that's happening, but maybe I'll, I'll, uh, I'll let you drive the, uh, the question. <laughs> well, no, why don't you pick up on that? What were you going to say? 
you know, it's interesting, you know, over the last, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, the, you know, the global mining industry really has migrated from, you know, a builder of technology and innovation to a buyer, you know, and that generally means historically, a lot of these mining companies would have in-house employees that focused on R&D to build proprietary solutions as a competitive differentiator. And if you look at the trend over the last 40, 50 years, there's been a gradual divestiture of in-house R&D function, but these mining companies still need to solve complex and tractable problems. So that has given rise to what is now deemed a vibrant global supply service technology ecosystem of an outsourced innovation model where the problems and the uh, are being addressed by the development of products and services by a supply, a supply side of the equation. So given that the mining industry has migrated to more of a buyer of technology versus a builder, now the capital markets can see a path whereby if I'm going to make a meaningful investment in a startup or a small to medium sized tech company, there's now that whole side of the equation where the mining companies, if they want to enhance productivity, safety, drive competitiveness or shareholder value, whatever the, the, the you know, tangible outcome might be, they have to buy these solutions. So as an investor in a tech company where there's a strong demand or buy side of the equation, it now enhances the probability of an investment because you can see a path, albeit still somewhat laborious and you got to navigate a decentralized procurement model in the, generally in the mining industry. You know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, it would be very difficult to see that path. So, you know, coinciding with that, you know, you've seen a, a huge growth in the, uh, you know, in, in the capital markets to support the supply service tech ecosystem because the mining industry have become buyers. And, you know, how we expedite that, you know, the collaborative nature and joint venture models, how the mining industry is enhancing their sophistication of procurement to invest in and test and give a proof of concept opportunity to a small startup. That still, you know, needs to be improved and is still working its way out. But I think it's only going to get better and bigger, and you're going to see a lot more capital going into the uh, kind of the supply side of the equation, given the the nature of the of the buy equation in the mining industry. So it may have taken forty or fifty years to replace that that innovation function. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and I, I would argue that, and again, you know, I only have anecdotal data to support this, but you know, the amount of time and effort and resources that mining companies historically put into development of proprietary solutions and technologies to improve their operation. I think that pool arguably is is the same, if not, you know, a little bit bigger. It just looks very different. It's no longer done in-house. It's done by a third-party outsourced innovation model, which I love. I'm a huge fan of that. I think it spurs creativity. And, you know, it enables mining companies to focus on, you know, creating, uh, you know, sophisticated procurement and engagement models. There's a whole series of reasons why I like it, but that's the reality. And I think it's here to stay. So at uh, NORCAT, you almost get a look into the future because you get to see all the cool new technologies that are being tested and validated in real mine conditions. So what are the most important areas of technological innovation that you're seeing? What are the solutions that mining companies are most looking for? Well, I'll speak from the perspective of underground mining because that's kind of what I would know the best. And I'll speak from a position of primary research using the underground center as my data source versus, you know, the secondary research that, you know, most of your viewers are 
probably be very familiar with. You know, some of the emerging trends, uh, and, and by the way, you're right, by, by virtue of geography and proximity, we have a unique perch to kind of see what's what's bubbling up in the ecosystem. But obviously, the move towards electrification, especially in, in uh, you know, jurisdictions where there's high energy and labor costs, there is a huge amount of investment, time and effort being spent to really understand how that works. And it's not all, you know, focused purely on the battery. You know, if you look at uh, electrification like Blue Vein, so many of your viewers are probably familiar with Blue Vein. It's a tethered electrical system. Uh, one might be surprised to learn they're getting a huge amount of traction. And it's, you know, a, a model of electrification that's been around for a long time that's getting kind of a rejuvenated, you know, view and, and look on how it can transform minds. And it challenges the notion of status quo, if I can call it that, batteries. You know, so you have debates around, you know, watt versus trickle on vehicle charge. Well, you know, things like blue vein are causing, you know, giving people a second look. So more broadly, the whole electrification transition is going to be uh, a trend that that is only going to have more time, effort and resources allocated to it. Uh, in underground mining, continuous cutting, you know, very often, uh, you know, the industry will refer to that potentially as the holy grail. You know, if you can cost effectively enable continuous cutting, it has a whole series of benefits uh, that, uh, you could imagine some of the big engineering firms such as Hatch are doing some remarkable technology development in that space. You know, teleremote autonomous vehicle operation, you know, companies, Canadian companies like Hardline, among others, is, is fascinating what, you know, with a resilient underground infrastructure in terms of a communication network, it's amazing what you can what you can do in that space and what is already happening. So, you know, those are kind of three themes that we see most often around electrification, continuous cutting, and this whole move towards other remote autonomous vehicles, among a myriad of others. And again, I'm focusing more on kind of the exploration of mining supply chain. Obviously, the downstream beneficiation, tailings management uh, on the environmental side, there's a huge amount of technology development going in that space. But those are the three that I can safely say that we very often get into uh, you know, very lively discussions with mining delegations that visit the underground center to understand what's next. Those are the three themes that come up most recently the most often. Don, you have a very kind of wide perspective and wide view of mining versus other industries. And I wanted to ask you, what can the mining sector learn? Uh, given that it's in this period of huge technological change and modernization, digitalization, innovation, what can mining learn from other industries that may be further ahead in, in their transformation processes? I think the transformation is rooted in this outsourced innovation model. You know, so if you look at other industries that have kind of experienced that, you know, consumer products, retail in some respects, even the med tech space, oil and gas to some extent, you know, those large incumbent legacy industries that historically developed and, you know, prided themselves as a differentiator around their capability to build and develop in-house proprietary solutions. If they look to other industries that have, you know, evolved and transformed, you know, there's a whole series of factors, but that notion of understanding and recognizing that you have become a buyer of solutions to drive shareholder value, competitiveness, productivity, safety, whatever your outcome is, those mining companies and you said it at the onset, which I, I, I can't stress enough how important it is and how often we see it. Those mining companies that evolve and continue to improve their ability to engage with the external, you know, supply side, technology side, startup ecosystem, 
those companies that can do that effectively, you know, with, with you know, dedicated efforts and resources, those who understand how to do joint ventures, those who can support, you know, proof of concept testing within their facilities, all of those kind of are maybe argue softer side, anything rooted in that convergence and collaboration model, those mining companies that can do that the quickest with the most, you know, authenticity and that high level of engagement will be privy to emerging technologies that they can adopt and deploy faster than their neighboring mining company. And they will win the battle. They will win the battle of competitiveness. So if you look at other industries and other incumbents who are, you know, big players in those, uh, you know, I'll call them legacy industries, those who have migrated to the outsourced innovation model, those who can figure out how to best collaborate and work quickly and effectively with that supply side, they will win. And that's the one takeaway that I would encourage anyone in the mining realm, just take a deep breath, recognize that you have to buy, understand the sophistication on how you do expedited procurement, product testing, development, deployment, change management, whatever it is. If you master that, you will win. On that note, can you tell us a little bit about NORCAT's open innovation platform and, and why that was launched? Yeah, so we launched that a few weeks back at Mine Expo in Las Vegas. And essentially, it's a it's like an online marketplace that does three things for mining companies. One, uh, we get solicitations around, you know, our perspectives on emerging trends in certain thematic areas within a mining company. So we now have a group that does curated market research on themes that are important to mining companies. So as an example... If a, a mining company wants to better understand the emerging technologies around electrification, we now have a team in-house that can go out and, you know, come up with an opinion on what are the emerging companies, what are the emerging trends to enable that mining company to have a, a clear perspective on what's in the marketplace. The next thing that we're doing are, I'm not going to say traditional, but we're doing uh, versions of challenges and hackathons. So uh, as we've done actually most recently with Valet, they had a series of, you know, challenge areas within their operation in Sudbury. They reached out to us, they use our online platform. We developed problem abstracts. We promoted them out to our global network of you know, various technology hubs and innovation centers to then subsequently do a call for companies that might have a solution. And then we have a pretty sophisticated process where we can work with those companies, build a project plan, uh, they have access to the underground mine to do POC development testing in the underground mine. And we work with those companies in a somewhat like an accelerator to get them to the point where they have a demonstrable proof of concept that could solve that problem. So quite unique in that we have a, the asset being the underground center that we can support, you know, uh, what one might argue is a fairly straightforward, you know, innovation challenge hackathon. We're a little bit different that we actually will take it to a proof of concept demonstration within our underground operating mine. And then the last thing that the open innovation platform supports is we call them buy sell days. And you can liken it to a quarterly version of Dragon's Den, where we will, you know, self-identify or invite based on a request of a mining company, you know, really interesting tech companies that are building solutions to support, you know, the mining industry. So we will invite the buyers and we will have two or three companies not pitching for capital, they're pitching for a sale. So these are companies that have already raised their capital, be it through non-dilutive or equity funds. They have a product, they're looking for that first customer. 
here's how it works. Maybe they have a POC installed at NORCAT already. And then we will handpick and invite mining companies that we believe have an interest in a better understanding that and actually try to connect those companies with the desired outcome of those companies getting a transaction. So depending on the nature of the need of the mining company, we're having very different discussions right now, but we're super excited by it. Um, it's, it's, uh, we think it's quite, it's quite a, a natural fit to our, our business model at NORCAT. So uh, we're excited and stay tuned for our next iteration with, uh, with Valet in the near term, which we're quite excited about. Great. I'll, I'll be looking forward to hearing more about that. I wanted to also uh, make sure that we get time to touch on the other side of what NORCAT does, which is uh, training the, the workforce of the future. It's a kind of a general question, but I have to ask you this because because we're in a very interesting time right now where the pandemic has given skilled workers more flexibility in terms of their working conditions, working from home. So many people are working flexible hours and we're seeing that employees are enjoying more power in the labor market and quitting jobs that don't give them flexibility or otherwise leaving them unfulfilled. So where is the mining sector in this? Are they seeing any of these same pressures? Absolutely. Yeah, you know, even prior to the pandemic, as you'd be familiar, you know, the mining industry, Human Resources Council of Canada and their 2019 or 2020 labor market study forecast that in Canada alone, we're going to need over 100,000 new mine workers in a relatively modest scenario. So that in itself, even prior to the pandemic, created a, a huge skilled labor you know, gap. And it's only getting worse. You know, we see it pretty much every day with mining companies that solicit to us, you know, do you have any graduates of these programs that are looking for employment? So the demand side far exceeds, you know, the supply side at this point, creating a lot of leverage that the employees then have to kind of pick and choose, you know, where they want to go. And, you know, if it, there was a great, um, you know, a great supplementary survey uh, done in that labor market study by Mir that still to this day holds true that, you know, the number one human capital challenge of mining companies still right now is recruiting. Right on its heels, number two is retention. So, you know, the, the question then becomes, what are more sophisticated ways to recruit? You know, are you looking at immigration, uh, which a lot of mining companies are, as you know, you know, are you looking at campaigns in other jurisdictions within Canada that could be, you know, somewhat higher unemployment? Are you looking at, you know, creating, you know, more creative models of employment, you know, flexibility, higher pay, whatever. There's a whole series of things that are happening. And then beyond that, how do you retain them? One of the interesting things that we're seeing, and it holds true in many industries, if not all, if I generalize. But a lot of the feedback that we get, if you are fortunate to get the right workforce, how do you retain them? And the, the, the feedback that we get is you have to have the right supervisor. You know, people want to work for someone that motivates and inspires them. So as a data point, you know, our supervisor training program is the busiest it's ever been with, you know, new or existing supervisors within mining companies coming in, getting kind of the core curriculum that we would offer. But now some of the questions coming up around, you know, how do we become better supervisors to retain that talent? So, yeah, we're, we're seeing a huge push on mining companies being as creative as possible to recruit, subsequent to retain. And it's, it's quite complicated. And, and, and the only thing I'll, I'll tie in maybe to the first half that we're seeing as a really interesting differentiator is, you know, the investments in, you know, emerging technology by mining companies are often thought of. As, as mechanisms to improve, again, productivity, shareholder value, competitiveness, safety, et cetera. But what we're starting to see more so now as the power shift goes to the employees 
is that all else equal, a would-be new recruit to a mining company will actually look at the job that needs to be done. And that mining company that has adopted and deployed emerging technology, creating a job that's more akin to what that individual might be seeking in a job, aka operating a LHD using a teleremote system in an urban center. All else equal, we're definitely hearing that that incoming generation is, is more um, probable to take that, that job. So, you know, winning the battle for talent isn't necessarily rooted anymore in compensation, because I would argue based on what we're seeing is you can actually pay that prospective worker even a bit less but they can operate with a bit more flexibility from the creature comforts of their own home, operating that LHD or perhaps two or three, you know, kind of over the course of a day. And that is how you will win the battle for talent. So the adoption and deployment of new technology needs also to be seen as a method to, you know, win the battle for talent. And, and we're seeing that, you know, even that EY survey that was done at Borden a couple of years ago, how telling is that whereby that all electric mine, they interviewed all of the workers midway through the deployment of all the electric underground fleet. And they essentially asked them that if the value proposition of the electric fleet doesn't prove to, to, you know, come to the expected fruition that the mining company had hoped and they migrate back to diesel, would you stay? And 91% said, no, I've had a, I, I now have an experience of, you know, this is what it is. This is what now drives me. And you, by the way, you can't just pay me more. It's not about that. So now the paradigm has really shifted. So those mining companies who, who are listening to that prospect of and, and existing workforce to understand, you know, how you win the battle for recruiting and how you win the battle for retention, technology is going to play a critical part. And I think with, without that understanding, it could be very challenging. Well, that's so interesting. And it was actually unexpected, the technology um, and retainment uh, connection, but also that you said earlier that your direct supervisor is uh, really important in terms of retention. It's, it's in our surveys that we've done, it is the number one indicator of someone will stay or go. People join a company because of the company, people leave a company because of their supervisor or colleagues. Mm -hmm. The data shows that time and time again across any industry. So those companies, those mining companies in this context that specifically invest to ensure their supervisors know how to you know, navigate and manage and, and support and listen and all of those you know, somewhat you know, seemingly obvious things, but not always practiced, that is a critical driver of retention. And, and we're seeing it. Uh, we're, we're seeing certain mining companies win and we're seeing some lose. And a lot of it's rooted when you do the exit discussions, then like the people or the person I was working for. So I, you got to address that. And it's really important. Are miners paying enough attention to their organizational culture as a whole and whether they're inclusive enough? Or are they just on, yeah. on the beginning of that journey to even look at that? Oh, I think, I think so. You, you know, across all industries, uh, you know, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion is critically important. And I think most mining companies, the ones that we've worked with, especially in developed economies, are doing the right things. There's continuous room for improvement to do more, but most importantly, they're listening. And I think the, the listening and then driving actions out of that to ensure, you know, you know, engaging more First Nations workers, engaging uh, more women in the workforce, ensuring that everything is, uh, you know, policies are in place to ensure equitable, you know, opportunity for all. Is, is just as important in mining as it is in every other industry. And yeah, make no mistake, the mining industry too still has work to do, and, but they're investing in you know, making improvements and in getting business done. So yeah, it's 
it, the, the trend is going in the right direction, in my opinion. Good to hear. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was lovely to speak to you again, as always. Yeah. Likewise, Alicia. Take care. Well, it doesn't get much better than this to host this podcast in such an environment. I'm going to be in Greece another week, so we'll see if I'm still in Athens. I imagine I will be. We have another fantastic Airbnb lined up. Hope you enjoyed the show. And if you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory or send it to your friends. And don't forget to sign up to the Northern Miners Next Global Mining Symposium. If you want to attend in person the Rare Earth Elements special event that we have with some of the leading people in the industry, you can ask questions when you sign up. So don't miss it. Events.northernminer.com. Until next week, take care.